this morning is the transition of the book, and uh, we are at that pivot point uh, that that video uh, highlighted uh, in chapter 6, and uh, we are going to look, if you had your outline, uh, I put some new outlines out there in the back, but hopefully you have an outline. I actually updated it a little bit, so if you have one that I handed out originally, you may notice the difference here that chapters 1 through 5 are the threat to the Jews, and chapters 6 through 10 are the triumph of the Jews. And so these 10 chapters can be broken up right down the middle, and you have five chapters uh, where we see the threat, and the last five chapters we see the triumph of the Jews. Well, we left off last time at the end of chapter 5 with the sound of hammers and chisels ringing in our ears as a 75-foot stake was being built to execute Mordecai. And I was, in fact, reminded of it last night as we were coming back from the Wokeness and the Gospel Conference, and we drove through Huntsville, and I saw good old Sam. He's still there. And somebody uh, texted me last week when I said, I'm not sure how tall he is, and I got a text last week after the message. It just said 67 feet. And I knew what they were giving me the answer I was looking for. And so apparently the Sam Houston statue is 67 feet. And so you know how huge that is, right? When you drive by, you can actually see it for miles as you come uh, from our direction uh, going up to Dallas. And uh, so this was 75 feet. Uh, This was to make a point, a statement. And uh, so the future looked bleak for God's people. I said last week that the that the, uh, the hero was chained to the, or the damsel was chain, uh, 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 tied to the railroad track, right? And the, the train was coming around the bend, and was the hero going to get there in time? And so we see here in chapter 6, the tables begin to turn, and we're able to see that it would only be a matter of time before the Jews are vindicated before their enemies. And I've titled this chapter, Perfect Timing. And as I was thinking about that, this, you know, timing is really what this entire book is all about. Uh, the theme verse is back in chapter 4, verse 17, or verse, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 16, where, um, excuse me, it's verse 14, I'm finding it now, Esther chapter 4, verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a, what, time as this. And so this entire book is really all about God's timing, and God's timing is, what, perfect. He's never early, he's never late. He's always right on time. And whenever God's people talk about God's work in their lives, you'll oftentimes hear them say, well, God's timing is just so perfect. Right? You've heard that. You've probably said that. This is typically our response when God answers our prayers in a timely way, or it's maybe what we say to encourage someone uh, who's waiting on God to work or to move in a particular situation. And let's just be honest. I mean, waiting on God is one of the hardest things that he calls us to do. Is it not? Especially when he remains silent and appears to be absent. That's why the book of Esther, I think, is so relevant. It's so practical for our lives as Christians. Because God seemed silent. He appeared absent. He's never mentioned anywhere in the story, and so it begs the question, where is God in all of this? You've asked yourself that question, or at least thought those things, right? You maybe even even come out of your mouth in a moment of uh, concern or frustration or anxiety or complaint. Where's God in this? I was reminded of the books that I used to look at when I was a kid, uh, and you may remember these, uh, the Where's Waldo books. You remember that, Where's Waldo? Uh, that goofy little guy with glasses and uh, a, 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 white and, a white and red striped shirt and a little white and, and, and red striped hat with a little pom-pom on the top. And, and so the book was just filled with scene after scene after scene after scene of just 
just chaos, right? I mean, there's just stuff everywhere in these scenes. And, and, and uh, the, 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 the artist uh, would, would insert Waldo in all sorts of interesting little places. And so this book was kind of for those long car, car rides, right? Those long road trips where your parents were trying to, you know, occupy you and say, when are, are we there yet? Are we there? So you could sit for hours looking for Waldo, page after page. After page. And, and once you looked at it for a little while, you got good at it. And you're like, well, there he is. Well, there he is. Well, there he is. He's there. Oh, look, at him. he's right there too. He, Waldo was what? He was everywhere in those pictures. You just had to learn to, to, to get an eye, right? To have an eye to see him. And, and I think that's the point of this book. We're calling it The Hidden Hand, seeing the providence of God everywhere in everything. God's invisible hand of providence, I think, is seen most clearly in how the events unfold here in chapter 6. And I think it's most applicable for us to, to see these events in the context of waiting on God. Because Esther was right at this moment in the story waiting on God's perfect timing to make her request to Hazuerus, or to make her reveal, if you will, that she was a Jew and that Haman had made this decree to kill her and all of her people. And so what I want us to see in this chapter are four examples, four examples of God's perfect timing that encourage us to never question God's timing, but to patiently wait on Him. Four examples of God's perfect timing that should encourage us to never question His timing, but to patiently wait on Him. So first of all, let's look at the timing of Ahasuerus's insomnia. The timing of Ahasuerus's insomnia. Look at verse 1. During that night, that night being the very same night that the gallows or that stake was being constructed by Haman and his family to uh, impale Mordecai, that very night... The king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written about Mordecai, excuse me, it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on the king as Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And then the king's servant who attended them said, him said, nothing has been done for him. So while Haman was busy building the gallows for Mordecai, Ahasuerus was tossing and turning. And the author gives no reason here why the king couldn't sleep. Maybe he had a bad dream. Maybe uh, he, something was troubling him. Perhaps he had eaten too much pepperoni pizza. Um, not sure, right, before he went to bed. So we're left to conclude that this was a divine case of insomnia. Those of you that maybe have insomnia, have a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep, uh, perhaps there's a divine reason for that. I recently heard someone say that they were waking up more regularly in the middle of the night, and while it was frustrating, uh, their prayer life had never been better because they were taking those moments, instead of just staring at the ceiling, to pray and to engage with the Lord. So here's the king of Persia with a divine case of insomnia. Now, he could have chosen any number of entertainments. We, we know he was a party animal, right? He had all sorts of food and drink and music and not to mention an, an enormous harem that he could have taken advantage of. But instead, he asked one of his servants to read him the records of his reign. Obviously, he was desperate to get some sleep. Talk about a, you know, a yawner. Uh, Persian kings used to record uh, all of their decisions, all of their discussions in an, in an encyclopedic fashion. I mean, there were, they were just books and libraries full of records of the kings. You can see that in Ezra chapter 6. 
verses 1 and 2. When they had to reference something, they just went back to the, the, the library and, and pulled off the, one of the books out of the encyclopedia. So, in the providence of God, of all the records of Ahasuerus's 12-year reign up to that point, I mean, this is what we're talking 12 years now, the portion read to him that night contained the account of the assassination attempt on his life, which had been foiled by Mordecai five years earlier. And we see that in Esther chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. If you don't remember, in those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. And if you remember, we said, at that moment, the next thing we would have expected to read was, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai. But that's not what it says. What does it say? Who did he promote? Haman. And so Mordecai, and his act of um, loyalty to the king, was overlooked, was, went unrewarded until now. And again, the king couldn't remember what, if anything, had been done to properly reward Mordecai for saving his life. Um, the Greek historian Herodotus indicated that it was a point of honor with Persian kings to promptly and generously reward those who benefited them. I mean, it was good for public relations, not to mention their own safety. Right? I mean, who, would, who is going to save my life next time if there's no certainty of reward? If things just kind of get overlooked, oh yeah, thanks, whatever, man. Well, who's going to be, you know, ready to step up and rat out the, the next uh, coup or assassinators? And so when he discovered that nothing had been done to honor Mordecai's loyal act, he wanted to correct that. And so God's perfect timing here in the king's insomnia. Secondly, we could see an example of God's perfect timing in the timing of Haman's visit. I mean, talk about perfect timing. You cannot make this stuff up, okay? Verse 4, so the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. And so Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Hmm, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? When Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him... Let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let him array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. And this is really good. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this. I mean, here's Haman, who has showed up early to work that day with one goal, with one thing on his mind, and that was to get the king's permission to hang Mordecai, and he arrived in the providence of God at the very same time Ahasuerus was thinking about how to honor Mordecai. And so the king asked his most trusted advisor what he thought should be done for a man who he wanted to honor. And Haman, as we've learned, is such an egomaniac, right, that he assumed the king wanted to honor him. He was thinking about honoring him. So he thought, well, what would I like to have done? How, how would I like to be honored? How, how would I want to be exalted and rewarded? He was already wealthy. If you remember, he was promising to give an enormous amount of money, right, to the king for letting him kill the Jews. I think what 
Haman craved more than anything else was the respect and recognition of man. Why do you think it bothered him so badly when everyone else was bowing and that one guy, Mordecai, refused to bow and it just bugged him? It irritated him. And so he suggested an elaborate parade be given in the man's honor where he would be treated like he was the, what? The king. I mean, this is essentially say, I, you know what I think you should do? As you were, I think you should make that guy king for a day. That's what you should do. I think that's what Haman wanted most. He probably wanted to be king. Not just for a day, but for a lifetime. And again, I'm making an assumption here, but I would assume that he had his eyes on the throne because he was probably the next in line, right, in the line of power. If something were to happen to Ahasuerus, kind of like the VP, right, in the, in the United States, if something happens to the, to the president, right, the next in command is the, the vice president. And so again, here we see the perfect timing of God and the timing of Haman's visit, well, we also see the, the perfect timing of God in the timing of Mordecai's reward. The timing of Mordecai's reward. If he had been rewarded five years earlier, right after this had happened, right, this would have never happened. This would have never been as, as perfect as it should be in light of what we're learning about Haman. But look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman... Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. He even threw that part in there. Just to pour salt in the wound. He didn't even realize what he was saying, but that just probably poured salt in the wound for Haman. Yeah, I want you to do this for a great idea, man. Now go do that for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the, city on, through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. You know he was choking on those words. I mean, he was, those were the hardest words probably for him to ever form and, and, and to make come out of his mouth. I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on that palace wall <laughs> to see the expression on Haman's face when Ahasuerus said, hey, that's a great idea. Now go do that to Mordecai. That's what I want you to do for Mordecai. By the way, this is the first of five times that Mordecai was called the Jew. We see it in chapter 8, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 29. Uh, chapter uh, 9, verse 31, and also chapter 10, verse 3. In other words, so now we're, 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 we're zeroing in on the point that God takes care of the Jews. Not just the Jew, but the Jews, his people. And so here's Haman having to eat humble pie. And again, the whole reason why he had gone to the king in the first place to get him to pass an edict to destroy the Jews is because Mordecai refused to bow down to him and honor him. And now the king ordered Haman to lead Mordecai through the city and command people to bow down and honor him. I mean, this is sweet justice right here. Haman must have been seething with anger the entire time that he, he paraded Mordecai through the city and proclaimed his, his worst enemy as the man whom the king delighted to honor. How embarrassing, how humiliating, how ironic. And one of the greatest ironies in the scriptures is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, and Luke chapter 14, verse 11, and Luke chapter 18, verse 14, he who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We see that principle here 
in the life of Haman and Mordecai. Proverbs 29, 23, we said that uh, there's lots of um, wisdom and, and foolishness exemplified here uh, in the book of Esther. We mentioned that last week. One other proverb that I think fits well here, Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Essentially saying the same thing as Jesus said, right? He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm sure you have occasions that you can think of where you maybe got a little too big for your britches and you were kind of exalting yourself, tooting your own horn or thinking highly of yourself, and what happened? God humbled you. I hope there's also occasions that you can remember where you really legitimately tried to humble yourself and just keep your mouth shut and not say anything and just just lie low and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and in due time, right, he'll exalt you. And you, you, you were amazed. Something happened that was just above and beyond anything you could have asked for or even imagined. Why? Because God chose to exalt you because you had humbled yourself. Some of you may remember uh, our beloved brother, Adam Tyson. Uh, he was our uh, student pastor for about seven years. And those entire seven years, he was nothing but a blessing to me and everyone in our church. And what I often said to Adam, to his face, was, Adam, if I were to die tomorrow... You could take over this church and the church wouldn't miss a beat. In fact, it'd probably be better off if you were the pastor. I just always had a high regard for Adam. I felt like he was an extremely godly guy, very humble, very sincere, faithful to the word, loved people, um, great counselor. And, uh, and yet, you know what? Never once in those seven years did I ever feel threatened by Adam Tyson because he always just was so humble. And such a team player. And uh, he always was so submissive. And, and, uh, and so I told him, I said, Adam, the Lord's going to reward you someday. He's going to exalt you someday. He's going to give you an opportunity someday um, that is far beyond anything that maybe I've ever experienced. Because you've humbled yourself here under the mighty hand of God. And I'm confident that someday he's going to exalt you. And those of us that have been able to watch his ministry there at Placerita Bible Church and, and beyond, it's been exciting to watch how God has chosen to use that man. Amen? And uh, why? Because he's humble. And uh, he demonstrated that to me personally. And he modeled that for all of us during those years that he faith, faithfully served here. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Again, the timing of this is just so ironic. Not just because Haman had to honor Mordecai on the very day he was planning to hang him, but because the king was honoring a Jew who he had unwittingly condemned to die through his edict, and he was about to find out that his wife was the cousin of that man and thereby her relation, a Jew as well. Again, the last time Mordecai was mentioned in the story, he was dressed in sackcloth and mourning at the king's gate. Now he's dressed in royal robes, which was completely unexpected and far beyond anything he could have imagined. And yet, unlike Haman, he didn't let it go to his head. He, he didn't... Uh, call all his family and friends together to gloat of his good fortune like Haman did, right? We read about that, learned about that last week. Like a proud peacock, Haman was always kind of showing off his feathers for everyone to see. Hey, look at me, look at me. Somebody told me that's what Facebook is. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Now, that doesn't mean you have to cancel your Facebook account or profile, I'm not saying that, but guard your heart. 
Why are you on there? What is your goal there? What a difference a day makes, huh? I mean, just the day before, Haman had rushed home boasting about the best day ever, right? I got to go to a banquet with the king and queen, and I was the only one invited. Best day ever. And now he rushed home in shame and mourning to tell his family and friends about the worst day of his life. Look at verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Jareth, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Jareth, uh, and Zareth, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. I hate when my wife talks to me that way. I'm just kidding. That was a rough conversation. And apparently his wife and his counselors, his friends, saw what had happened that day, and they knew it was a bad omen, at least from a secular perspective to them. It was, this is a bad omen. And so they warned Haman that if Mordecai was a Jew, man, his doom was sure. Dude, you are going down. And so they, again, apparently knew enough about the history of this ongoing family feud be, between the Amalekites and the Israelites that, that Haman didn't st stand a chance against Mordecai. He was bound to lose. Why? Because he was under the curse because if you remember, the Amalekites were the ones who attacked the Israelites on their way out of Egypt. Just getting out, just, just had come through the Red Sea and were making their way into the wilderness. And here comes the Amalekites to attack them. And God said, because of that, you guys are cursed. And God at one point told Saul, right, to wipe the entire nation out. I don't want one Amalekite alive on this planet. As a result. And without realizing it, this profound statement that was made by Haman's wife and his advisors became one of the key verses in the book of Esther, which expresses the main point of this book, namely that no one can possibly stand against God's chosen people. Again, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, verse 13, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. That expression the, of, of Jewish origin literally means the seed of the Jews. If Mordecai is of the seed of the Jews, you're a goner, man. And, and again, it, it seems that these pagans, whether they realized it or not, were aware of God's covenant with his people. That you, you don't mess with the Jews. Uh, in Abra uh, the, the covenants, I think of the covenants of, that God made to Abraham, both Abraham and David. Genesis chapter 12 Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and, and, and the one who curses you I will curse and in you or through your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then 2 Samuel is where we find the Davidic covenant, that was the Abrahamic covenant. This is the Davidic covenant. This is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are complete, this is God speaking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now he was talking in near time about who? Solomon, his son, 
who would build the temple, but in far time he was talking about who? His ultimate descendant who is Jesus Christ. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, now he's talking about Solomon, obviously, because Christ didn't commit iniquity. I will connect him with the, correct him with the rod of men and strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall depart from him as I took away from Saul, whom I have removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Not through Solomon, but through Jesus. And so seen in the light of God's covenants to Abraham and David, the original readers here, the Jews living in Persia at the time, were to appreciate the providential work of God in preserving those of Jewish origin or the seed of the Jews. And again, this book was originally written to Jews living in post-exilic times to assure them even though God seemed silent, appeared absent, why were they in exile? Where was God in all this? That God would keep his promises to preserve them. Despite their disobedience, and even though they were not spiritually or even physically where God wanted them to be, he would protect them and he would deliver them. One commentator said this, I thought it was very good. He said, quote, God's work of providence is so clear that even the pagans can't miss its significance. So you got the pagans in the story going, whoa, this doesn't look good. This, this is no mere coincidence. Some, something else is against you, Haman. Some higher power is out to get you, man. You got bad karma, right? Maybe that's all they were thinking of it as bad karma, but they knew something else was at play. Little did he know it was someone else, right? The commentator says, even Haman's friends are not so dense as to write off this day's events as mere coincidence. They know all that all of this must be attributed to the intervention of Israel's God and that once he becomes involved in the world, the final outcome is never in doubt. There was no question in their mind, Haman was a goner. May we never be accused of being dense as to write off events in our lives as mere coincidence. As Christians, we should have, oh, what a coincidence. You're dense if you say that. Okay, I'm just saying There is no such thing as a coincidence. What we're learning from this book, it's all about what? Providence. Again, words matter. Um, I was talking to someone or listening to someone recently, and they were talking about some future plans. and, and, And as they were describing their future plans, it was very natural the way they said, you know, Lord willing, we're gonna do this, and Lord willing, we're gonna do this. And I was like, praise God for that evidence of of, of God's grace in their life that they've learned to think about and plan for the future with God's will in mind. That we make our plans, but the Lord, what, directs our steps. And, and it's not like, Lord willing this, and Lord willing this, and Lord willing this, and as if it's some kind of spiritual thing. And sometimes people say, and it sounds kind of clunky and um, forced and insincere. And, but this was very genuine. It was very sincere. It was very natural. Again, you know, Christians, I think I'm picking on some people now, I'm sure, but, you know, when Christians say, hey, good luck, what is that? That's, that, that's what, how unbelievers talk, because they don't know about providence. We know about providence. Why aren't we making a big deal about providence? Why are we, why are we attributing things that God has done to luck and coincidence and fate I know there's at least one person in the church that gets it because a couple Sundays ago they came up to me before I was about to preach and they said, hey, good luck. <laughs> and he, caught, he got me off guard. And he just had a, had a little sly grin like, ha ha, gotcha. <laughs> I was like, oh man, you rascal. That's good. At least you're listening. That's good. Yeah, don't tell me good luck before I go up to preach. <laughs> Unless you're kidding. Okay. 
I might have to take you out right there. What? Well, let's look last of all at the, the fourth example here of God's perfect timing. And it's simple. In verse 14, while they were still talking with him. So they're having this conversation about his bad karma. Or, hey, you know what? We've heard about the Jewish God. And you don't want to mess with him. And our ancestors did. And it didn't go well. And guess what? It's not going to go well for you either. Right in the midst of that conversation, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. I mean, this is just getting good now, right? I mean, this is like, wow, the plot thickens. And so while the, the sobering death knell was still tolling in Haman's ears, here comes the eunuch. Hey, Haman, you ready? And he was swiftly escorted to the banquet where his evil plot to annihilate the Jewish race would be exposed and he would end up being skewered on the same spike he had built to kill Mordecai. This was that same banquet he was all excited about going to. Couldn't wait to get there. And because uh, why? He would have been, he would already had his, his arch enemy Mordecai skewered on the thing and he was going to go off a happy man to this banquet. Well, that's not exactly, not, not at all what God had in store for Haman. Again, this is just a very practical chapter, I think, for all of us because we all hate to wait on the Lord. Is that just me? And we, we really don't like to wait. And we can relate to the frequent cry of the psalmist who said, How long, O Lord? We like those songs. Or we, I should say maybe we have a love-hate relationship with those songs, right? But when we read that, we're like, yeah, I get that. Lord, how long? And so you know you're not the only one that ever thought that or asked that question. Time and time again, the psalmist, Lord, how long am I going to have to wait? But that same psalmist who was asking that legitimate question, how long, O oh Lord, teaches us that waiting on the Lord is an act of worship. It's an act of obedience. And this is one of the main themes in the Psalms. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the Psalms right now. And I just want to show you a couple examples that I think are so helpful for us to go to school on. Psalm 25, Psalm 25, verse 1. Here's David, Psalm 25, verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, and you I trust. Do not be ashamed, do not, let my, do not let me be ashamed, do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Is this sounding at all familiar? Esther, Mordecai could have prayed this prayer. Perhaps they were reading these psalms being encouraged by these psalms, being reminded of the need to wait on the Lord. They had access to these psalms. These were written by David years earlier. Verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I, what? Wait all the day. Look at Psalm 27. Again, David Verse 13, Psalm 27, verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Some of you, by the way, could say that. You're in a situation you're like, man, if I didn't know something, I would be freaking out right now. I would be in total despair if I wasn't convinced that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living, verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Look at Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope 
for his loving kindness. You're like, you know, I don't feel the Lord right now. I don't see the Lord right now. Well, guess what? He sees you. You may not see him, but he sees you. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on you. If you fear him, if you put your hope in him, Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according to as we have hoped in you. And then lastly, look at, look at Psalm 37. And tell me if this is not a perfect illustration, if you will, of what we're seeing going down in the book of Esther. Psalm 37, verse 7. Again, this is David years earlier, but how applicable is this? How relatable is this? Verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Insert Haman there. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, by the way, insert Mordecai there, right? We're going to see that happening. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. Yeah, just next chapter, Esther 7, we're going to see him go down. He'll be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Haman will no longer be a part of the story of Esther after the next chapter. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. From chapter 7 on, we're going to see the rise of Mordecai and the restoration of the Jews. Now jump to verse 32. This is Psalm 37, verse 32. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. It's exactly what Haman was doing. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned where he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. We're about to see it. Verse 35, I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Right? This was Haman. Check me out. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. This is Mordecai. For the man of peace will have a posterity. But transgressors will be together destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Amen? That's what we're seeing being played out in the story of Esther. And so I think this story was intended to encourage us not to worry, not to complain or, or to take matters into our own hands. Sometimes that's what we do when we don't know what to do and we don't know what God's doing. And so we just say, well, I'm going to do something. But we need to quietly and patiently and confidently trust God to protect us and provide for us in just the right way and in just the right time. And God is never in a hurry. All you have to do is remember the story of Lazarus. When Lazarus, Mary, and uh, Martha sent word to Jesus, Jesus, our brother is dying. And the next verse you would assume would say, and Jesus immediately dropped everything and went. What did it say? This is John chapter 11. Verse 6, it said he's, he waited two days before he went. What? That doesn't sound like Jesus, the loving, gracious Savior. He, he had a precious relationship with that family. 
You would have think he would have dropped everything and just gone and, and, and rescued him. But was that God's plan? No, he, he had another, he, he had uh, other plans that would bring him more glory. He could have run, run off and, and healed him and he would have never died. But how much more glory? He would have got some glory for that, healing a sick man. But how much more glory did God get when he rose, uh, raised a dead man from the grave? So you don't know what God's up to. You're wishing he would do something right now. You're like Mary and Martha saying, Lord, would you, would you get here? I need you now. I'm in a predicament now. I need you to intervene now. And essentially, God's going to wait a couple days or a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years or a couple decades. But it's because he has his glory in mind. How can I get the most glory out of this situation? And he also has our good in mind. He has your good in mind. And there's things that he wants to accomplish in your life, in my life, through these providential delays. It's all part of his sovereign purposes to teach us and to grow us and to fill up where we're lacking in our faith. And so again, waiting on God doesn't mean we just sit around and wait. Waiting in Scripture, even from the Psalms we just read, involves meditating on his attributes and believing his promises and casting our fear and anxiety on him knowing he cares for us, seeking him with all of our heart, longing for him like a deer pants for water, preferring him and desiring him above anything, anyone else on this earth, obeying his commands, striving to glorify and honor him in all that we say and do, putting our hope in him and proclaiming our hope in him. That's all what's wrapped up into what it means to wait, to wait on the Lord. I'll give you a homework assignment. It's easy. It's fun. Go back and listen to that song by John Waller called While I'm Waiting. Some of you may remember that song. It was made popular through the the movie Fireproof. But uh, you can just go on YouTube. Type it in. While I'm Waiting. John Waller. There's a video you could watch or whatever. I love that song. I have it sometimes when I go on a walk or a run or something, I, I put that on like, what is that called? Loop. Just to listen to it over and over again. And, it, and it's all about, I'm going to worship you while I'm waiting. I'm going to obey you while I'm waiting. I'm going to trust you while I'm waiting. It's a powerful song. Go home and listen to it. Over and over again. That's your homework. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for this simple story that just is rich with application for our lives. And Lord, I know there's people here who are struggling with a situation, a predicament, maybe an evil person uh, who is making their life a living hell. They're tempted to be anxious, to be fearful, to complain, to wonder where you are in all of this. And I pray, Lord, that today you would give them, grant them the grace to wait well, to wait upon you in your perfect timing, and that as, you, as they wait upon your perfect timing, that you would perfect them and conform them more to the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.